Welcome back to the Dark and Stormy podcast. We're happy you could join us once more for a glimpse into the twisted, terrifying world we live in. We've now started a Patreon, so if you're interested in supporting the show, please click the link in the show notes. Every little bit helps. In part one of this two-parter, we will be recounting a number of murders that involve catfishing, the disturbing and unsettlingly common practice where a person pretends to be someone they're not online. One of the scariest things about the internet is that a person can go online and pretend to be anyone at all. They can begin friendships and relationships using a fake identity and sometimes even use this tactic for far more sinister purposes, as we will discuss in this episode. There are countless alarming stories of people catfishing others to get money or personal information for identity theft. In rarer cases, however, the catfish uses deception as part of a scheme to murder their victim. In this episode, we will cover a number of disturbingly deadly cases, all with varying motives, but all ultimately leaving you with the same conclusion. Never trust anyone on the internet, ever. Story number one, Breck Bedner. Breck Bedner was a teenage boy in Essex, England, who loved nothing more than playing games online with his school friends, using headsets to communicate with one another while playing. In 2013, Breck was 14, and a world of opportunities was opening up for him. He was a member of the local air training corps, a youth military program, and he had a burgeoning passion for computers, something he could see himself turning into a career. His parents were divorced, and he was living with his mother and three siblings, with whom he was very close. His dad lived nearby, and he spent a lot of time with him also. That year, Brick and his school friends had joined a private game server run by a guy named Lewis Danes. Lewis was very friendly with the boys and had a lot of experience with computer technology. At 17, he was a few years older and already running a computer company. And he became some sort of a mentor to Brick. Eventually, the two began private messaging each other and over time, they also began to speak quite regularly. Lewis seemed worldly and he and Breck began to discuss more mature subjects like religion and politics. Lewis was very passionate about his ideologies and gradually began to influence Breck's opinions on a number of topics. Lewis kept strange hours because, he claimed, he was in charge of a huge computer technology company and was often in New York or other exotic locations for work. He also said that he worked for the US government and his position required him to travel to a variety of other countries. Despite this, he was always seemed available and eager to talk to Brick whenever he came online. The two communicated over their headsets through private messaging and through text messages. Breck's mother, Lauren, was very aware of what her children did online and would often monitor Breck's computer use to make sure he wasn't doing anything he shouldn't be. At first, 
She thought of Lewis as just another of her son's friends, and she even talked to him on a number of occasions. He always seemed friendly and open with her. After a while, though, things began to take a strange turn. Slowly, Lewis began to alienate Breck from his friends and family. He kicked Breck's other friends off the game server and convinced him that they weren't his true friends. Under his guidance, Breck began to rebel against his mother's rules, something he had never done before. He protested that he shouldn't have to go to church, and he lost all interest in the air training corps, something he used to love. Lewis's opinions on things started to become Breck's opinion on things. He saw Lewis as an older, wiser friend, one who was guiding him in the right way to live and teaching him everything he knew about computers. Lewis assured Breck he could easily get him a fantastic career in computer technology. Breck's mother, Lauren, had grown suspicious of Lewis and was very unhappy with the changes she saw in her son. She was disturbed by how much control this random internet stranger had over Breck, and she was very dubious of his intentions. Fed up, she took away Breck's computer and phone, along with anything else he might use to access the internet. She absolutely forbade him from talking to Lewis, and even contacted the police regarding him. She gave them his name to find out if, in fact, he even existed, but received no help from them whatsoever. Since the conversations had never taken a sinister or sexual turn, the police didn't see the problem. She and Breck's father, Barry, tried to arrange a meeting for Breck and Lewis, one where they would also be present. They wanted to see for themselves if Lewis was anything like the person he was claiming to be. Lewis lived only a short drive away, but he always had some excuse for not meeting, such as being out of the country. After Lauren took away Breck's computer, he slowly started to seem like his old self. He was back into his usual activities, and all seemed well. After a long overseas school trip, Breck seemed optimistic and genuinely excited about life. Upon his return, he went to stay with his father for a few days. While there, Breck asked his father if he could stay at a friend's house. And unbeknownst to anyone, especially his parents, he took a taxi to Lewis's apartment. The truth was that Breck had never actually cut off communication with Lewis. After his mother had taken away his technology, Lewis had secretly mailed Brick a cell phone so they could stay in contact. It was then that Lewis began to put his dark plan in motion. He told Brick that he was sick and could no longer run his company. He wanted to hand it over to Brick and teach him the ropes, which was Brick's dream come true. He likely saw the deception of his parents as a means to a worthy end. And so, on February 16, 2014, he headed over to meet Lewis, expecting to have his dream career handed to him on a plate. On the contrary, something unspeakable will happen in Lewis's apartment, resulting in an ominously calm phone call to police by Lewis, claiming he and Breck had had an altercation, which ended in Lewis stabbing Breck. 
this explanation was nothing even close to the sick truth of what had actually transpired in that apartment. Somehow, Lewis had bound Breck with duct tape and viciously stabbed him in the throat. He then took photos of the macabre scene, which he later posted online. By the time paramedics reached Breck, he was beyond saving. Before police could even contact Breck's family, his siblings had been contacted by friends who'd learned about the murder online, along with all the grisly images. It was beyond any family's worst nightmare, and it was about to get even worse. It goes without saying that Lewis Danes was nothing like the person he claimed to be. He was actually 18, and while he was a computer engineer, he was unemployed and lived alone in a dingy flat. He spent his days trolling the internet for young boys to groom, and Brick, in his kindness and naivety, had been one such unlucky boy to cross paths with Lewis. When Breck's mother, Lauren, had first contacted the police for their help, it had in fact been his real name that she'd given them. What police had failed to see was that he already had a criminal record. A few years prior, he'd been accused of sexual assault on a teenage boy, but for some unknown reason, it had never gone to trial. Lewis had been grooming Breck to be a victim but he had done so with precise subtlety, using Brick's own interests as a lure, devoid of all sexual undertones. There was nothing in any of their conversations to set off alarm bells, and Brick had no idea what was happening until it was too late. Lewis pleaded guilty to avoid going to trial, and was sentenced to life in prison for a minimum of 25 years. Breck's family felt their son's case had not been taken seriously by law enforcement and began legal action against them. After Breck's murder, previous targets of Lewis began to come forward. A boy who lived in America had, unsuccessfully, tried to convince his parents to let Lewis come and stay with them after Lewis had promised to find the boy a fantastic job in computer technology. Brick's parents wanted to do something significant in their son's memory, and so created the Brick Foundation to spread the importance of internet safety. Lauren visits schools to give talks about her son's murder, spreading the word about just what kind of monsters can be found lurking online. In 2015, a documentary was released about this case called Murder Games, which is currently available on Amazon and streaming services. Recently, local law enforcement had begun production on a short film about the crime to be shown to students. Brick's family ultimately hopes their efforts can help protect young people and save lives so that no one has to go through the same torment they have had to endure. If you are interested in donating to their charity, it can be found at brickfoundation.org. Story number two, Jason Rodriguez. In the spring of 2011, 19-year-old Jason Rodriguez was a freshman at Valencia College in Florida. He had casually dated a co-ed named Grace on and off, but having spent most of high school in a serious relationship, he did not want to get too serious with Grace. Also, 
She seemed quite jealous and overbearing, so he thought it best to end things with her sooner rather than later. He was handsome, popular and a bodybuilder, and he just wanted to have fun with his friends and meet new girls. He was new to college life, young and free, and meeting tons of new people both in person and on Facebook. Not long into the spring semester, he became Facebook friends with a beautiful 19-year-old named Tyann. They started messaging each other quite often, which eventually graduated to speaking on the phone. She seemed very interested in him and was eager to make plans to meet up. On February the 2nd, she invited him over to her house. Not long after he had made his way to her house, a person driving down a neighbourhood street happened upon a man in a bandana who was shooting into a parked car. The man opened fire on the witness, but they were able to escape unscathed and call the cops. When the cops arrived at the scene, they found Jason in the car with two gunshot wounds, one to the head and one to the neck. He was still alive and rushed to hospital, where he would linger in a coma for several days before finally succumbing to his wounds. At the crime scene, police had found his phone, which had several text messages directing him to the house where he had been parked and shot. Strangely, the house was in fact unoccupied. Police discovered the messages had been sent through a particular app, and they were able to obtain the message history through iTunes and find out who had sent the messages. The record showed they had come from a man named Israel Neves, a gang member with a long rap sheet, who wasn't part of Jason's social circle and had no known connection to Jason. Police got a warrant to search Israel's house. Once they looked through his electronics, they discovered he had been pretending to be this Tyann girl. She had never existed. They also found photos of him posing with a variety of guns including the relatively rare type of gun that had been used in the shooting. Though, still there did not seem to be any direct connection between Israel and Jason. Except, they did have a mutual acquaintance in Grace, the girl that Jason had briefly dated. When police questioned her, they found out that she had been in a serious relationship with Israel, but had left him a few months prior as he was extremely abusive, and she was terrified of him. It was finally discovered that Israel had created a fake account out of sheer jealousy, hoping that if Jason liked some other girl, perhaps Grace would come back to him. He'd gone so far as to enlist the help of a female friend who would speak to Jason over the phone, ensuring that he believed she was real. The whole debacle is especially tragic, given that Jason had never even been interested in Grace and had broken things off with her before Israel had even set his plan in motion. Israel went to trial in 2013, receiving a sentence of life in prison. Story number three, Nicole Cable. In 2013, 15-year-old Nicole Cable was a high schooler living in Milford, Maine. She was pretty and popular, always surrounded by friends, 
and was one of those people who naturally attracted others and made friends easily. She met an older guy named Kyle Doob through Facebook and quickly developed a crush on him. They met in person, and though he was 19 and already had a child, she was won over by him. After they'd spent time together on several occasions, she learnt that he already had a serious girlfriend named Sarah, and this girlfriend was furious that Kyle had been hanging out with another girl, even if it had been completely platonic. Nicole was angry that Carl had pretended to be single and wanted nothing more to do with the whole situation. But Sarah began bullying and threatening her through text messages. Nicole wanted to move on and forget about it, and shortly thereafter began chatting to a new guy on Facebook named Brian Butterfield. Though she was trying to get past the situation with Kyle, his girlfriend Sarah could not move on so easily and continued to harass her. One night, Brian invited Nicole to a party and offered to pick her up and meet her parents. Unfortunately, he got lost trying to find her house in the dark and instead asked if she could just meet him at the party. With no other way of getting to the party, Nicole decided to make amends with Kyle and asked for a ride. He seemed agreeable to being friends and picked her up. However, they too got lost and couldn't find the party, so Nicole messaged Brian and made a plan to meet him the next night. She said she would sneak out and walk down the road to wait for Brian to ensure he found her this time. The next morning, Nicole's mother awoke early and flew into a panic when she realised that Nicole wasn't home. She called Nicole's friends, who knew about this Brian guy, but when they tried to contact him on Facebook, his account had been deleted. Her friends and family rallied quickly, creating missing persons flyers and getting the police involved. As police searched Nicole's property, they found a few items of her clothing and a balaclava in the woods near her house. It all seemed very ominous. Nicole's friends showed police the pictures of Brian she had sent them and gave them his full name and any other information they knew of him. After a search, they found someone by that name living in the area, and when they met with him, though he was obviously not the guy in the pictures, every other aspect of the Facebook profile was a match. He knew nothing about Nicole at all, and it quickly became obvious that someone had created a fake Facebook account using his name and information along with someone else's photo. After questioning him, they learnt that his ex-girlfriend was Sarah, the girl that had been harassing Nicole and who was currently dating Kyle. They tracked her down and questioned her, but it was clear she had a concrete alibi for the night that Nicole went missing. Police brought Kyle in for questioning and revealed to him that his DNA was a match for the DNA found on the balaclava. As the facts emerged, it turned out that even though Kyle had a girlfriend, he had become obsessed with Nicole and, cre and had created a fake Facebook account to talk to her. He claimed he had planned to just kidnap her, but somehow he'd actually ended up accidentally killing her. He eventually told police where she was buried and the police later found her deep in the woods. While many suspected that Sarah had something to do with the plan, 
Kyle insisted he had done it all on his own and therefore they had no reason to charge her. He was found guilty at trial and sentenced to 60 years in prison. Story number four, Brian Barrett. When 22-year-old Brian Barrett was shot to death in his truck outside his workplace, few people could have predicted the twists and turns that his case would take. The young, friendly man did not seem to have an enemy in the world, and the truth behind his murder would be far more complex and shocking than anyone could imagine. In the spring of 2005, Brian worked at a factory, and as an outgoing, jocular young man, he quickly befriended many of his co-workers. At the time, he was also in college, and he was looking forward to a proper career once he graduated. One of his co-workers was a 47-year-old former Marine named Thomas Montgomery. Despite being socially awkward, Thomas was part of the boys' poker night with Brian and some of his other friends. Thomas learnt that his poker buddies often played online poker together as well. He wasn't very computer savvy, but he loved poker enough to figure it out and registered on a site as Marine Sniper. It wasn't long before Thomas, a husband and a father, began chatting up a user with the handle Tall Hot Blonde. Tall Hot Blonde sent him pictures showing that she truly was as her username advertised, and she was also only 18 years old. Once he saw her pictures, the seed of obsession was planted. He was already experiencing a midlife crisis and longed to be the strong, virile young man he once was. Receiving attention from this beautiful young girl was a massive ego boost, even if she didn't know who the real Thomas was. When she asked for a photo in return, he sent her one from his younger days in the Marines. He also told her he was 20, on active duty and currently overseas. The truth was, he'd actually left the Marines due to an injury and was now an impotent, recovering alcoholic and living a life that was far from exciting. While initially he joined the site to socialize and play poker with his friends, he soon found himself eagerly looking forward to his chats with this young woman, which quickly became the singular highlight of his day. His burgeoning digital relationship began to give his life new meaning, and soon their online dalliance blossomed into a fully-fledged digital romance. Before long, the two were exchanging I love yous and having many sexually explicit conversations. The amount of time he spent online began to make his wife of 20 years suspicious. He had made other suspicious life changes too, such as throwing himself back into exercise, perhaps in preparation for his future life with this dream girl. At some point, the pair had agreed that they would even get married and be together forever. Thomas seemed to genuinely believe he could transform himself back into the young Marine he'd portrayed himself as. After several months of this deepening infatuation, the inevitable happened and Thomas's wife discovered his secret. She found all the conversations he had saved and was beyond horrified. Not only was her husband having an emotional affair, but he was preying on a young, naive woman who was barely an adult. 
She sent a letter to Tall Hot Blonde, telling her the truth and including a picture of Thomas and their family. In most cases, that would be the sad end of the story, but in this instance, things took an even more bizarre twist. A few months later, Thomas discovered that his co-worker and friend, Brian, had struck up a relationship with Tall Hot Blonde. Even worse, once Brian had found out what Thomas had done, the pair posted in several online forums that Thomas was a predator and even managed to get him kicked off his poker website. Word quickly spread throughout his workplace about his explicit online affair. Thomas's wife stayed with him, but he could not get over his obsession with the girl he could never have. Tall hot blonde seemed to vacillate between the two men, and at one point, she incited some lovey-dovey conversations with Thomas again. Soon, they fell back into their constant conversations. However, he eventually discovered that Brian was taking a long trip from their home state of New York to meet Tall Hot Blonde at her home in West Virginia. He was irate and flew into a jealous rage while at work. A few days later, on September 17, 2006, Brian was found dead, parked in his truck outside of work. He had left work that Friday night with the intention of spending the weekend with Tall Hot Blonde, but he'd never made it out of the parking lot. Upon the discovery of the body, Thomas was an immediate suspect since everyone at work knew the drama between he and Brian. In fact, when the body was discovered, Thomas was out of town, having spent the weekend camping with his family though he did not have a concrete alibi for the time of the murder. Once he returned to town, he was questioned, and it did not take long for him to crack and reveal all. The final brutal slap in the face came when law enforcement revealed that, when they had gone to question Tall Hot Blonde with regards to Brian's murder, they discovered that she was in fact a woman in her late 40s named Mary Sheila, who had been using her daughter's name and photos. This woman was so desperate for attention that she had sent photos of her bikini-clad daughter to perfect strangers. She claimed she never really cared about the men at all, and she was in fact already married and had been for decades. Thomas received a sentence of 20 years for murder. Once in prison, he became suicidal after his wife and daughters cut off all contact with him. As a side note, it was found that Mary Sheila had a history of seducing men and having cyber sex with the help of her daughter's photos, some of which were disturbingly racy. After all of this manipulation and deception, which ultimately ended in murder, she received no criminal charges, though her family did cut off contact with her. Two lonely people locked in a web of deception and so many lives damaged and lost, all for attention and a fantasy of what could never be real. Thank you for joining us this week. Next episode, we will continue this two-parter with more catfish murders, so be sure to stay tuned. Until then, keep that nightlight on because you never know what's waiting for you in the dark.